0: If I could give one piece of advice, one piece to both the Trump administration and the Newsom administration, to the Trump administration, it would be policies matter. Think really hard about why you're doing what you're doing. What do you care if California wants cleaner air? Why does that hurt you? These policies matter, just be thoughtful about it. If I could say anything to California, process matters. I understand why you want what you want. I understand, I live here, that we're different, but just like, you don't have to poke the administration in the eye every chance you get. Sometimes you get more bees with honey.
1: There's been no shortage of climate-related news in recent days. From President Trump's attack on California's cap-and-trade system to Senator Schumer's $450 billion EV proposal. From the launch of a bipartisan climate caucus in the Senate to gridlock over climate goals in the House. And from disastrous wildfires raging in the West to the anniversary of Superstorm Sandy that ravaged communities in the East. It's a grab bag on this week's episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, contributing editor with Green Tech Media and a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. Sitting here with me in Los Angeles is Brandon Hurlbutt, our Democrat, a partner at Boundary Stone Partners, and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy.
2: Julia, my throat is still sore from booing uh, Donald Trump at Game 5 of the World Series this weekend. Oh my gosh,
1: you sound great. Uh, That was kind of a controversial uh, boo that happened at that World Game Series. I think people were shouting, Lock him up. And one uh, of those people was me. Oh, all right. (laughs) Um, well, as we record this on a Wednesday, the Nats are heading into the World Series final, so fingers crossed for them as a former DCer. We'll be rooting them on. Anyway, on the phone is Shane Skelton. Uh, he's a Republican on the show. He's a partner at S2C Pacific and a former energy advisor to Paul Ryan. And Shane, you're supposed to be here today, but you are in the midst of coping with wildfires here in Los Angeles. How are you doing?
0: Yeah, it's crazy up here. So apologies in advance to the audience if the audio is not what they're used to. We, um, you know, it's crazy how fast these fires pop up and happen. We were told last night because of the heavy winds that our school district would let us know by 6 a.m. if the kids were going to be in school. And so we got an email at 6.01 a.m. that said, you know, schools are open. My other kids' daycare is right next to the fire, so they were going to be out either way. But at 6.01, the schools were going to be open. At 6.14, this fire pops up. And by 6.45, we get a follow-up email from the school saying schools are closed. So, you know, we're going, uh uh-oh, my wife and I both work. Um, This is obviously terrible for so many reasons more than that, but we've got to sort of realign our day, but that's okay. We'll, We'll both work from home. We'll get it done. We'll take care of the kids. We'll make sure everyone's safe. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, boom, power goes out. So now I am in my house. Um, I'm on my cell phone. I do not have power. I do not have uh, internet connectivity. My kids are brought up to, to our in-laws house. I'm staying here trying to figure out, you know, if we need to evacuate and what to do with the dog. But it just seems like this is something now that we used to talk about because it was a big deal, but it happened like a couple of times. And when it happened, it was terrible and people died and, and it was, you know, awful, but it's happening every single day. Every single day, I'm on fire watch. It's, it's really odd.
1: Yeah, it's, there's been some coverage now on, on whether or not this is legitimately worse. Um, I think the trend is, yes, these are becoming more disastrous fires. California has always had fires, something Governor Newsom pointed out recently. But then on a recent interview, uh, our former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger talked about how even during his tenure, he saw these fires getting worse with time. Here's what he said on Jimmy Kimmel.
3: First of all, you're absolutely right. Fires happen all the time. And I think that during my administration, we have seen, because of climate change and other things, the fires increased. There was no more fire season. It was kind of all year round. Like, as you can see, this is very unusual to have, in October, such huge fires. Yeah, sure. uh, uh, So they are not only in Southern California, but they're in Northern California. They're all over the place. And when I was governor, there was one time I went to bed, and they said there's around 500 fires all over California. And I was like, I couldn't sleep the whole night. I was like up and thinking to myself, how do you handle this? And what do you do about it? How do you have the resources for all this different places and all this? And then in the morning, I, I get up and I make a call. And they tell me there's now 2,012 fires all over California. I wow. mean, just to think, to, to, to show you the, 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 the size of it all, it's so overwhelming that you really have to kind of pull your act together and get, you know, the National Guard was helping. I mean, everyone was helping the federal government, was helping the local firefighters. And we have one big advantage here in California when it comes to those kind of events. And that is, we have the greatest firefighters in the world, bar none. I mean, this is- We have great
1: firefighters, firefighters, We do, and they seem to coordinate very well. So Governor Schwarzenegger was actually evacuated in recent days because of one of these L.A. fires. Indeed, the firemen and women are doing an excellent job of keeping communities safe. But as he went on to note in this interview, there aren't enough resources going to these responders. And I think as we'll get into, there isn't enough of a broader plan for how to deal with this threat. And the science shows that this will only get worse. As California becomes hotter and becomes drier, the risk only goes up. So, as we're sitting here, there are at least three major fires we know about. Shane, I think you're being affected by the Easy Fire. There's also the Kincaid Fire in Sonoma County up north, which has burned through more than 75,000 acres driven by high winds. And at last check, it was only 15% contained. Then there's the Getty Fire here in Los Angeles, another one which has burned through more than 650 acres, spreading quickly into hillside neighborhoods, and it's also only 15% contained as we speak. A couple miles
2: from where we are right now.
1: Yeah, a couple miles from here.
0: Just for the sake of our audience, um, you know, the Easy Fire, for example, that we're experiencing is nowhere near as severe as the Getty Fire or the Kincaid Fire. But I think what a lot of people don't know, if you don't live in these fire areas, is I think people will be safe up by me. I don't think there will be any fatalities. I mean, fingers crossed, of course. But- the, the economy shut down. There's no power. There's no schools. Like, it, 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 it impacts people in more ways than just what you can see on the news. I feel like that's a
2: bad name, the easy fire. I don't know if any fire is easy
1: (laughs) i think it's named after like an exit on the highway (laughs) but i hear you it's not great branding (laughs) for fires um no shane doesn't
0: feel very does it feel easy to you right now no (laughs) yeah it feels terrible i mean you know i'm in one of those positions where it feels easy for me compared to what i know others are going through but no it's not easy compared to day to day it is a terrible name though i think julia's right I think it's a landmark more than uh, more than like a commentary on (laughs) on the difficulty of the fire.
1: Yeah. I mean, these fires are actually terrible. And, you know, as we talked about in previous episodes, it's the damage of the fire and then this damage and the risk that comes with the power outage. So. Up north, um, PG&E, as we know, it's facing bankruptcy. Uh, while the cause of the Kincaid fire, that huge one that's blazing up there, has, is still under investigation. pg did report that a broken jumper wire was found near a transmission tower, near where that fire broke out. And not only that, it's under hot water for these preventative power outages. The latest blackout was uh, issued on Tuesday and it was the third round in a week and it affected, I believe, one point five million people across twenty-nine counties, and that's including one million people who were still without power from a shutoff over the weekend. That is a lot of people. To your point, Shane, that's a lot of economic productivity. Just Also, the human factor, you know, people who rely on medical equipment that needs power, uh, getting kids to safe places. It is just really, um, you know, it's it is a disaster.
2: I mean, I have some thoughts on, you know, how I'm seeing this, which is uh, both on the sort of policy and political side Uh, on on the policy side. It seems like right now, you know, all we're seeing is like ways to try to prop up PG&E by sort of bailing it out or you know trying to sell it. Governor Newsom has talked about, you know, trying to get Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway to to buy it. Uh, but that seems like a band-aid approach to me because uh, we need more than a band-aid. This is going to keep happening. We're going to keep having these wildfires. We're going to keep having these, you know, public power shutdowns. Uh, we're going to keep increasing all these liabilities. And so I think we need comprehensive change to the energy system where we have utilities who are incentivized to more aggressively deploy distributed energy resources like microgrids, reduce greenhouse gas emissions and provide cheap, reliable power. And also partner with the private sector. There's a lot of exciting companies that, you know, where you can harness this innovation and their dynamic business models to accelerate these deployments. So I think we need to change the incentive system, move to these performance based, you know, regulations. On the politics, this can be crippling for an administration. I mean, we remember Hurricane, you know, Katrina and what happened down in New Orleans and what effect that had on George W. Bush's administration. I mean, that, you know, was really damaging to him. And I think, you know, if we don't, get our act together we're heading you know in that direction Shane's talking about the economic loss the loss of to life health and safety and the inconvenience these are this is enormous
1: yeah I mean there has been some commentary on not blaming Governor Newsom personally because I mean he has only been in the in the office for you know several months and there's a lot of this stems back decades really to regulatory decisions made at the public utilities commission and within the utility and there's so many stakeholders at play here and so can you pinpoint it all on the current administration for not getting this right like these the energy system moves slowly and this is the result of of a lot of people's decisions i think there's a, a, a good discussion to be had about who bears the brunt of it. I mean, I've seen a lot of people call out the utility regulators saying they should have approved more maintenance and spending. Others have said, hey, that budget was there. PG&E has discretion on how to spend it once they get the approval, and they didn't spend it the way that they should have. Some people have turned to ratepayer advocates and said they advocated for keeping electricity prices low in California, which they're already quite high, and that meant that they did not approve more spending for safety and maintenance. But then I I followed up on that with some experts and they're like, no, no, no. You can see in all the ratepayer advocate documents that they always supported maintenance. They were talking about other ways of keeping costs low and making sure PG and E spent the money correctly. So this is a debate that gets really in the weeds. I will point to some excellent reporting though by David Roberts at Vox. He's done a multi-part series on Uh, what to do about the fires and some of the issues at play. In one of them, he talks about how distributed energy is really a key part of the solution, but that if it's not managed and deployed with policies surrounding it, it will really exacerbate California's inequality. Roberts put it this way, quote, distributed energy is coming to those who can afford it. If California doesn't get its Together, it's at risk of stumbling into a safety and equity nightmare. And this is something we talked about in detail with Michael Wara on our previous episode. So I encourage people to check that out for a more detailed conversation of how California got to this place and what it can do going forward. I'm with
2: you, Julia, that, you know, Governor Newsom can't be held accountable for what led us to this point, but he, the voters will hold him accountable to what happens next and what solutions, uh, you know, you're providing. And so, I think there's a lot of work to do on that.
1: Truly, the devil's in the regulation. And if they screw this up, it looks like hell.
0: Yeah. And, and guys, this is, you know, so first of all, on the ratepayer advocate piece, you um, know, I can tell you that I know for certain, because I've read through these dockets, they do oppose these safety investments. Um, I'm not saying that they would get out there and say, we don't want safety, but they don't even understand what that means. So a lot of the time, when we talked about, you know, with Michael Wera in the last episode, undergrounding power lines allowing you know utilities to go in and put storage in several homes and build microgrids or virtual power plants these these consumer advocates oppose all of these things and i just don't understand how in california where we talk where we spend you know more money than any other state in the country by a long shot where we talk about the cost of climate change very openly unlike other states where we talk about the cost of rebuilding after wildfires very openly how this is the one space where we're not willing to invest prevention is the one space, that's one bridge too far, that's one cost that we can't accept. And David Roberts in his piece that you referenced, Julia, he mentioned what I've been saying on this show for a year, which is you can't have this be a solution for the affluent. Some people get solar panels and batteries and everyone else you know, gets gets to, to evacuate and, and not have power. So what you've got to do is, the governor's got to figure out a way, like Brandon said, to figure out how to do this moving forward. He is not responsible for the last decade, but he is responsible for coming into office understanding the threat that would become the next wildfire season, having utilities, you know, telling him what they needed to do, what kind of investments they need to make. And instead of doing anything, instead of lifting a finger to allow some of these investments to occur, all this administration has done is blame the utilities and look for punitive ways. I saw the other day that Governor Newsom advocated a $100,000 fine per day that powers out. So is that him saying that keep the power on and burn the darn state down? This doesn't make any sense. I'm with Brandon. It's got to be rethought from the very ground up. We can't say, how do we take our current system and make it 5% better? We've got to say what investments need to be made today to make sure that we can slow this down tomorrow and completely stop it five or 10 years from now. And I personally don't blame the utilities. They're incentivized to spend money. Maybe they're not incentivized to spend money on the right things, but that's a political and a policy problem, not a utility problem.
1: Well, I'm, I am agree with both of you. I mean, I don't see how California can do anything other than a full, wholehearted re-evaluation of this system. it's like a game of whack-a-mole right now. They're just kind of like, oh, a power outage here, bam. Like, no, that is not going to solve this problem. It's not just about resilience. It's how do you then also factor in your climate goals. There's an inherent tension there, I think, between trying to introduce you know, measures that bring California toward decarbonization and invest in resilience. This is climate mitigation and adaptation, which were, I think, kind of thought of on a timeline of first one, then the other. Now they're like head to head. And how do you address both at the same time? I think California is ground zero for that right now. And I don't know who's going to be able to sort of stem the flow of you know reactivity here and think more proactive. I don't know how that happens, but I do agree the onus will be on the Newsom administration going forward on how they can pivot into that mode.
0: You know, a little background here too, um, just for our listeners who, who don't keep track of this stuff very closely. When I worked on the budget committee, we uh, my I personally oversaw the Wildfire Funding account. And this was a big deal because this is an account that that was That was um, impacted by the budget agreement that we reached with the Obama administration, meaning that when the money was gone, the money was gone to fight fires, and even if California or Montana or Wyoming, or Idaho were on fire, there was nothing that could be done so one of the things that the Democrats wanted to do to their credit was they wanted to create a cap adjustment so basically, if disasters were so large that they would exceed the rolling average of the amount they were allowed to spend, they could get access to additional monies that were not subject to the spending cap. in other words, you wouldn't start you know pulling money out of other other federal departments to pay for this what republicans wanted what i fought for personally so i know this is true is absolutely we should have the money to fight fires when they occur but if we're going to pass a package let's make sure that we deal with prevention up front so let's make sure we're spending as much on preventing these incidents and making you know facilitating the investments that need to be made vegetation management forest management and we couldn't get anything out of them on it for years we couldn't get them to agree to prevention There's a number of reasons for that. There are environmental advocates who didn't want forest thinning and all sorts of stuff. But you've got to look at this holistically. You can't say, how do we combat fires? You've got to figure out how to prevent them.
1: One thing I quickly want to note in the Kincaid fire, because I mentioned that there was a transmission line that had a a broken jumper. Uh, PG&E did cut power to some of those lines in the area on the distribution grid, the local community grids, because of the threatening weather. But they kept power flowing on the high voltage transmission lines. So we're now seeing this fire risk across the electricity system. And even these targeted outages aren't enough for them to Prevent the risk entirely, so it's really a perfect storm of issues here. Um, Speaking of storms, it is actually the seventh anniversary of Superstorm Sandy this week. And Brandon, I know you were at the DOE and being part of that response effort. Any sort of memories that come back from from dealing with that?
2: Well, yeah, I think it's 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 related to what we're talking about because you know people are not when they're sitting there. Uh, With their power out, yeah, they're going to be upset about their utility and sure, you know, there was mismanagement happening, but they look to their political leaders to figure out solutions for them. And President Obama recognized this right away. I was in a meeting with him and Secretary Chu the morning after Superstorm Sandy and the president said to Secretary Chu and I, he said, the world is watching. I will be judged by my response and you two better get that power back up. And he said, and I don't want to hear about any red tape. If there's any red tape, you bring it back here, and I'll take care of it. So that empowered us to go and make sure we weren't getting you know, stifled by the bureaucracy and we could address the situation. You know, we also weren't uh, – you know, the DOE is not a utility, so you know, getting the power back up uh, you know, required us to, to do a lot of work with the utilities for, to, to do that. Um, but he you know, was a great example of, of leadership in crisis. He understood the voters were going to hold him accountable uh, for fixing this, and he made sure that we were on top of it. So I well, think, and, and
0: go ahead, Shane. Brandon, I can tell you, from the private sector position, I was at the American Petroleum Institute at the time, and obviously during Sandy, there were problems with getting fuel from point A to point B. And I'll vouch for what Brandon said. We were working with the administration on a regular basis on what do you need? Do you need truck weight waivers? Do you need access to certain facilities? I mean, they wanted to know what they could do politically to help us get energy to where it was needed to make sure the pain was as little as possible. And I don't see that happening in California. I don't see the executive saying, what can we do for you right now to make this great? And we can deal with the larger issues later. All I see is a blame game. And I, I don't hear any, anyone asking the question of the power providers, what can I do for you? Just That's an open question. No blame. No wrist slapping, what can I do? You can wrist slap later if you need to, but let's get through these issues. And I just have not seen that kind of leadership from from the California administration.
1: It is amazing in general to see how much energy and climate issues are dominating the news. I remember when we started this podcast, we were obviously in this space, so we were super interested. But there's the youth protests, as we've covered. Uh, Greta Thunberg, who's actually hosting a or taking part in a protest here in L.A. on Friday this week. Obviously, the Green New Deal, presidential candidates working on climate. Shane, are you going to be there? <laughs> Shane, are you going to the protest?
0: You know, I'm d- dying to get there, Brandon, but just totally triple booked. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I know you'd be there otherwise. Uh, yeah, no, Of course
0: so- I would not. Of course I would not.
1: Right. Then there's also these wildfires. Um, but a couple other quick notes. Murray Energy, one of the most... Famous coal companies and coal barons here in the country, that company has declared bankruptcy. And they really pushed hard uh, working with the Trump administration to try and get policy measures to shore up the company, to shore up the industry. It has not worked. Another item in the news is how the Trump administration is exploring possible oil production in Syria. President Trump made comments to potentially working with Exxon on this, which it's one thing if the U.S. wants to go in and protect these resources on behalf of Syria, behalf of that war-torn country. It is another thing if the U.S. wants to go in and then produce for its own economic gain, according to NPR reporting and experts that they spoke to. In fact, the latter could be considered pillaging, which would be a war crime. So another crazy energy issue in the news is, um, And then, of course, throughout this impeachment investigation, we keep hearing about Ukrainian energy companies. So energy and climate are very much in the news in ways I don't think we even could have perceived a year ago.
2: We didn't know if we could do a weekly show and now we could be like a daily show.
1: Truly, I know. I don't know. <laughs> we might be the only ones who listen to it, and and your mom, branding because I know she's active on Twitter, following along and More tweeting at than Shane. I, am. <laughs> I know you need to work on that. Uh, but yeah, I just want to take stock of a few of those other recent headlines. Okay, so we just ran through a number of items in the news, but it actually does not stop there. First up is the Trump administration's lawsuit against California's emissions trading system. This is the cap-and-trade system California put in place. was actually signed into law by Governor Schwarzenegger. Well, really, the groundwork was signed into law. According to the Department of Justice, uh, they say that California has intruded into the federal sphere because of the cooperation between California and the Canadian province of Quebec in this emissions trading market. Governor Newsom has called it a political vendetta against California. Obviously, Washington and Sacramento are at odds. There are, I believe, more than 60 lawsuits that have been filed between the two political entities. And it's fierce. According to the Wall Street Journal, Jeffrey Clark, assistant attorney general to the Environment and Natural Resources Division at the Department of Justice, said the decision to go after California's cap and trade system is not political. But he pointed specifically to comments from former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, who said that California can be an example for governments around the world because it has the, quote, force of a nation state. That is a comment that is cited in the lawsuit. It dates back to the mid 2000s when this law was put into place. So I don't know. That was in a speech. Seems like the administration's kind of reaching back here. Uh, I'm not sure if that carries any legal weight, but I'm curious to know what you guys think.
2: My thoughts are uh, just think about this for a second. California is trying to address humankind's greatest threat by partnering with other countries And if the Republicans were truly concerned about the Constitution, I think they would be looking at their president and uh, removing him from office.
1: All right, Shane, what do you have?
0: That seems a bit off topic, but uh, what I would say is I'm going to acknowledge up up front that um, that I uh, I don't know how this would play out in a court of law. Like, I have no idea if there's any validity to the Department of Justice's case, I, I've done some like you know brief googling, and I didn't have the time this morning for all the reasons we just discussed to look as deeply as I wanted. But um, I've seen you know whatever someone wants to be the outcome, they have you know legal arguments for why that's the proper outcome. So legally, I have no idea what this means. Um, I think what it, what it says to me is one, of course, California if they want to work on it, you know, California has its own regulations, always has. So. To the extent they want to work with neighbors on, on um you know providing more environmental benefits, I think that's totally fine. I think they should be allowed to do that. I'm not really sure why DOJ would use any resources trying to stop them from doing that. But more interesting to me, and one of the things that I've talked about for years, sometimes on this podcast, but sometimes just in political discussions or policy discussions, is if you don't want California doing its own thing and you don't want states you know making deals with other countries. Set a federal climate policy because once you do that, you have preemption. If we set a federal climate policy, California couldn't do anything that fell outside that policy, and so I just don't get why we don't use this opportunity to create a, a climate plan i don 't know if that's a carbon tax i don't know if that's a certain set of regulations i don't know if that's some of the more freewheeling you know race to the top stuff we've talked about where you provide incentives for states to do certain things. I think there's a lot of room for discussion there, and I know we had our solutions episode where we kicked some of these around, but if you're the federal government, there's an easy solution here. Put a climate plan in place that binds the U.S., you have federal preemption, and then you don't have to worry about California or anyone else.
1: Yeah. I just find these lawsuits so frustrating. It's like if there was truly a matter – Uh, a legal matter that was jeopardizing the United States ability to conduct diplomacy, which I think is part of the Trump administration's argument that they can't negotiate with other nation states when you have a state undercutting them. That's part of their argument. I just feel like that is so disingenuous, because unless that's truly proven, in which case, have a discussion, get the experts in a room, hash out a way to make the cap and trade program work in the nation state's best interest, but it feels again disingenuous and it just results in so much more work for lawyers and, and nothing feels like it's ever getting done. Julia, just, look
2: up. There's yeah. a bigger plan here. Yeah. Here's what Mitch McConnell and the Republicans are doing. They are remaking the judiciary to, you know, espouse these conservative pr- principles or just confirming things one after another unqualified people. And then when we pass these laws or do these deals, like we're talking about between California and Quebec, they are going to undermine them to protect their minority view. That is the plan. That is what they're doing.
0: So I, I favor redoing the judiciary. I think the judiciary has been far too liberal for far too long. I think it's taken us off course from the Constitution. But on this specific issue, I agree with actually both of you insofar as that I don't understand. I, I think both sides need to disarm. Now, you guys might think it's all the Trump administration. I understand that. I don't think it's all the Trump administration. I don't think it's all California. I think these. Both the state, the attorney general, the governor and the president are poking each other nonstop. There have been so many opportunities, so many for one or both parties to say, you know what, we will concede on this point if you'll meet and have a discussion about how to move forward. But every time I read something in the paper, and I'm not blaming California or the the administration uh, for all of it, it just seems that they intentionally escalate things. They even word things in a way that's intended to be offensive. So on both sides. So I just don't get why there's no willingness whatsoever to say, you know, we represent a huge state. And for the president, I represent a huge country. Let's just figure something out that works for everyone. And I wish I don't care who deescalates first. But I honestly think that, like, for example, this lawsuit would not have come up if there weren't so many other fights going on. California has to understand that the United States has a president and the president was elected and he disagrees with them. And there are certain things he can do, and they can't sue the president for everything. And the president has to understand that states have rights, and California has a very different circumstances, both geographically, politically, and in every other way is a lot of the country, and they have things they need to do, and they can't be sued for everything. I just don't understand why no one's able to work on this.
1: Yeah, I hear that. I, I feel like Especially, yeah, is- you're
2: the media. Both sides, you love the both sides, Julia.
1: Um, yeah, there's a way to have multiple <laughs> Let's undermine views. this you know, critical
2: deal for humankind. But you know, they're, the Democrats use some bad words.
1: those, those are both not, sides, not my reporting. Both sides. There's something to be said for covering the decision makers and what they say. That is, a, you kind of have to. Then there is a question of balance is bias, and you definitely don't want to tread there where you're you know, you're know, both presenting the latest news so people know what the leader of the country is saying, but then how do you make sure that it is bolstered by context and facts? For sure, the media, particularly mainstream media, has struggled with that as they try to churn out a ton of content. Um, separately from that, I mean, to push back on you, Shane, I think the problem here in California was some of the premise of these issues. It was things like going after sanctuary cities or stemming from immigration policy. I think was one of the first flare up points. And so that's where it's hard to just get in a room and say, okay, how can we like give and take a little bit? We fundamentally disagree. This would be California policymakers with this core uh, policy and what you're trying to do to the people that live here. And I think that's where things get really toxic. Um, It's very hard in that situation for anyone to get in a room and say, let me just hear you out. Let me extend an olive branch rather than rather than go on offense or defense. And so we get stuck with these lawsuits. And the Trump lawsuit against the California cap and trade system is not the only one. We've covered before that the administration is going after California's emissions rules, the rules that allow California to set more stringent, clean car standards. We know that um, the Trump administration is trying to remove California's waiver that allows it to set those those stricter uh, regulations. So we saw that several automakers including Ford, Honda, and Volkswagen teamed up with California to try to come up with a set of rules that the automakers would voluntarily agree to. The Trump administration then uh, indicated they would go after those automakers for antitrust violations. And then the recent news is that General Motors, Toyota, Fiat, Chrysler, and others are now backing the Trump administration on their challenge against California. So you know it used to be that the automakers were kind of a foot away from this. I think the Trump administration had gone further in repealing these clean car rules than even the automakers anticipated. But now in face of this conflict they are falling in line with the administration. So, I don't know, Brandon, do you have any thoughts on what that what that means for the policy?
2: Here's my thoughts. I am the proud owner of a Chevy Bolt. I love that car. It's a terrific car based on what GM just did. I'm so disappointed
1: it's kind of confusing because they were under fire, GM and others, for uh, transitioning to more fuel efficient vehicles and EVs, which just have fewer parts, which is resulting in some of these labor changes, which was part of the negotiations around which factories they keep open and how much work is available. And here they are, you know, joining in with the Trump administration on pushing back on clean vehicle rules. I'm Meanwhile, sure. Meanwhile,
2: China is trying to own this market. This is what these companies have to understand. If they don't get it together, China will own auto and mobile industry going forward.
1: I think kind of like the wildfires, there is this whack-a-mole thing where these companies are trying to figure out how do I cope with the issue in front of me, how to keep these workers employed, how do I keep my market share right now and plan for this future. And I feel like they're doing a bad job of keeping all the balls up in the air. I'm not saying it's easy, uh, but it does feel like the bigger strategy is being missed.
2: The federal government, I was there. We bailed them out (laughs) to move in this direction. And now they're fighting it again. And uh, that's really, it's really disappointing.
1: Change any thoughts?
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is another situation where literally everyone is wrong. I mean, the Obama administration was wrong for finalizing the rules more quickly than they were supposed to. The Trump administration was wrong for trying to take away the California waiver and ending any incentive that auto companies had to become more efficient and build more EVs. Auto companies were wrong for begging the Trump administration to do this and then bailing on him after he did it. Uh, Again, the administration was wrong for taking California's waiver authority, and California was wrong for not being more amenable. I mean, words matter, and I just don't get I, I like the California policy. I want to be clear. On policy, I'm with what California is trying to do. I think incentivizing more EVs is what we should be doing. I think more fuel-efficient vehicles is what we should be doing. So I want to be 100% clear on that. But these are these things where you know how to pick a fight with the administration. And why not just say, federal law is unequivocally clear that the federal government has this authority and the state does not. But federal law is also unequivocally clear that we've been given a waiver. We'd like to keep that waiver. Let's work this out. But they can't help it. They just have to say, like, we can do whatever the heck we want and all that sort of stuff. I just feel like literally everyone was 100% wrong. And I do think the automakers, all of them, find themselves in a weird spot where they fought the Obama administration rule tooth and nail only to beg Trump to change it, only to side with California against Trump. And I, I I just don't get what the plan was from, from day one, what the auto make what did they want? They obviously didn't want the Obama plan, they obviously didn't want the Trump plan. I think the California plan is similar to the Obama plan. I, I don't even get what they wanted. I think they misplayed this terribly.
1: Yeah. Uh the House Committee, uh the House Oversight Committee's subcommittee on the environment held a hearing just in recent days where uh former governor uh Jerry Brown spoke, and he you know he made this personal appeal saying, Hey, quote, this is not about me. I'm older than all you guys. I'll be dead. But your kids are going to be alive and they're going to face a terrible future. And if you don't face the reality and do something about it, you are complicit. Uh, So words from the former governor there uh, being held in a House committee.
0: I just feel like if I could give one piece of advice, one piece to both the Trump administration and the Newsom administration, to the Trump administration, it would be policies matter. Think really hard about why you're doing what you're doing. What do you care? if California wants cleaner air? Why does that hurt you? These policies matter. Just be thoughtful about it. And if I could say anything to California, process matters. I understand why you want what you want. I understand. I live here, that we're different. Our, again, our topography is different. Our geography is different. Our energy needs are different. Our population is different. Our reliance on vehicles are, is different. But just like, you don't have to poke the administration in the eye every chance you get. Sometimes you get more bees with honey.
2: Shane, you said earlier words matter. I think you should give that advice to Your Trump administration as well.
0: I think words matter for everyone, and I think you know if you want to be honest about it. I think there's a lot of stuff going on in Washington right now that could have been avoided with words chosen differently. So uh, words matter. I'm not I'm not aiming that at anyone, but they do.
1: Yeah, I feel like the words mattering. I think this is we're seeing now a culmination of a long period of political tension that had been rising, and no one was going to put that genie back in the bottle. Unfortunately. I feel like this the reason we're seeing such a vitriol right now is it didn't just happen yesterday, you know, and that's the sad and bigger picture here of I don't know how America heals itself. But this is where we are. Um, one other item quickly on the Trump administration, they did reaffirm their plans to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement. That can formally happen on November 4th. That's the soonest they can uh, file the paperwork. The pullout would then take effect one year later, just one day after the 2020 presidential election. And so I guess Trump would still be in office at that at that time, so it appears that the US will likely be moving out of that accord. A future president could, could reverse that, I suppose, but that is the timeline we're looking at.
2: We gotta win in 2020,
0: another reason. Well, and keep in mind, the accord itself has zero impact. So the real issue is, will whatever administration's in place pursue policies that would get the U.S. to compliance with whatever they agreed to in Paris? And you can do that with or without the agreement. So it's ceremonial. It's not, it's not like, oh, my gosh, let's get back in the agreement before it expires. It doesn't matter. If you put the policies in place to reduce emissions, uh, you're, you're doing something to be helpful. And if, if you don't, you're not. It doesn't really matter whether you're part of the agreement or not.
1: Well, it's actually a nice segue to the news that Senator Mike Braun, a Republican from Indiana, and Senator Chris Coons, a Democrat from Delaware, have launched this bipartisan climate change initiative in the Senate. It's the first initiative of its kind uh, in the Senate specifically. And their aim is to come up with bipartisan solutions to climate and energy issues. And to your point Shay, maybe this could be uh, the kind of group that comes up with real policies. They don't have to take the Paris Agreement title or anything like that, but comes up with a real set of bills that could have an impact on the climate crisis. Uh, There were rumors, there was discussion of this committee launching. I think the added momentum now is that Senate Energy and Natural Resources Chairwoman Lisa Murkowski has indicated she will be joining. I think there are a handful of others that have indicated they will do so. So we have touched on this before, but um, any other thoughts on what it means that that this caucus is officially forming?
0: So I think this is interesting. I mean, I think we talked about the Senate Bipartisan Caucus um, last week. Sort of the only new int- intelligence that I've picked up between then and now is just that uh, they do want to move a bill in the Senate, some sort of energy legislation as a as a, a, a goodbye to um, Senator Murkowski, having been the, the chair of that committee, because next year is an election year. They're not going to move, you know, a lot of energy legislation. So I know that there is some sort of um, desire to act. And I'm not saying something sweeping and, and something huge, but Uh, I think that gives this a little more teeth. If you're planning policies for no reason, it doesn't really matter. If you're planning policy and you want to try to enact something, uh, that's pretty cool. Well, to your
1: point, Shane, yeah, I mean, if there's real policy teeth here, that would be great. As a note, the Senate Energy Committee, led by Lisa Murkowski, a Republican, has passed 21 bills just in recent weeks, and they were passed on a bipartisan ba- basis with um, Senator Manchin on the Democrat side helping move those through. The question is, will they be brought to the floor? There is a lot actually getting done in the Senate, caucus aside. What I'm curious about is like what will actually happen in terms of getting it across the finish line. On the
2: on the Senate caucus, you know, most of my friends um, are highly skeptical. I think it's greenwashing to protect vulnerable Republican senators like Corey Gardner in Colorado, Susan Collins in Maine. Um, the thing that I sort of question alongside of that is, you know, the, they, they frame it as we're going to be this moderate group looking for, you know, business friendly solutions. Well, you know, and they talk about how, you know, energy efficiency, carbon capture, but you know, renewables, energy storage with batteries, those are those are business friendly solutions, too. Um, and I feel like they get left out. They 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 are business friendly and so and industry friendly, uh, just not to the current some of the current incumbents.
0: Isn't that sort of Brandon? Isn't that why a bipartisan caucus is good? Because I agree with you 100 percent. But just having a voice at the table when Republicans say, you know, hey, nuclear is zero carbon. Carbon capture is good. Some of the other stuff you just talked about. Having someone who's worked more with the clean energy industry saying, "Yeah, all those things that you said are good, but also so are these things." I mean, isn't that the value of a bipartisan caucus? It's
2: a fair point. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm keeping an open mind. Uh, I'm hopeful, but I am uh, one of my flaws is I am sometimes too optimistic. So <laughs> we'll see.
1: We got to bring you down a couple <laughs> pegs there. Um, Let's go to the House, though, because this is where Republicans are pushing back on Democrats' goals to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions economy-wide by 2050. That's a proposal some of the more, quote-unquote, moderate Democrats have actually put forward. It's not the Green New Deal. This was sort of their response to it, this 100 by 50, 100 percent decarbonization by 2050 or net zero by 2050. And then some Republicans came on the record challenging this. Uh, Greg Walden of Oregon, a top Republican on the Energy and Commerce Committee, questioned the sincerity of the Democrats' plan in a letter sent to Chairman Frank Pallone, a Democrat, earlier this month, as reported by the Washington Examiner. Walden said quote we want to work with you but serious policy making requires more than a tagline we need greater details about what you really want to accomplish what do you mean by clean economy and how do you envision that to be possible in the timeline outlined given the technological physical and economic realities of America's modern economy. Brandon you were the first to share an article on this uh, what are your thoughts?
2: One of the things I think we try to do with our show uh, where we you know try to provide value to our listeners is to make sense of these things and and help people understand what it means um and i i really enjoy getting you know shane's perspective because sometimes i I just don't understand some republican comments and i want to i want to know what it means and so one of the comments associated with this that i'm like just really curious as to shane's perspective is representative john Shimkus from illinois uh when talking about the net zero by 2050 goal he said setting unrealistic goals because it checks political boxes is not how you develop ultimately successful bipartisan policies. OK, I understand that. But how does that apply to a net zero by 2050 goal? That to me is not a political goal. That's not politicizing. What they're trying to do is the scientists in the IPCC report said we have to get to net zero you know, by 2050. Um, and so they're crafting public policy to reflect what the scientists are saying. I don't understand how that is political at all. And I'm just I'm really curious, Shane, what do you think about this? What what does that mean?
0: So, yeah, it doesn't rub me the wrong way like like it does you. I mean, starting with with uh, Chairman Walden or I'm sorry, ranking member Walden's um, letter that Julia read an excerpt from. Those are all legitimate questions because he's not even saying you can't do this. He's saying explain how you're going to do this. Don't just say it, talk about how you're going to do it. So I think that, that, sure, that, is totally above that. The that's totally fair. I agree with that. That's totally fair. I think I think you know what I what I hear the frustration I hear um from Shimkus's comments and and I actually think he's a, a wonderful lawmaker who by the way announced his retirement and then Walden announced his retirement which would make Shimkus the top Republican on the committee. So now he's saying he might un his retirement. So that's just sort of a fun fact for our listeners, but um neither here nor there. I think what he's saying is Everyone knows there have been people out in the street saying this has to get done by 2050. Now, Brandon, to your point, that is what, you know, was stated by a scientific report. But I want to remind everyone, and again, I'm not saying I don't want this. Of course, I want a decarbonized economy. But I want to remind everyone that most public policy, I don't even want to say not all, I want to say most public policy does not reflect what we know to be true. Most public policy in the space of science does not reflect science. Most public policy in the space of economics does not represent the best economics. There's a reason people hate, you know, health insurance companies because most public policy does not reflect what's best for, for human health. So I just want to be clear that it's not like our government has been consistent for the last 230 years in making God, sure that every federal me <laughs> law met, you know, the factual factual need out there. I think what, what Shimkus is saying is tell us how you're gonna do this. So what, what I would what what I, I don't mind Shimkus's comments at all, going you know somewhere that I think is productive, uh Senator Schumer, you know, introduced a bill trying to help electrify our auto fleet. Now I know that's not what we're talking about, but to me, that's something that's hard to argue with. He put a plan out there. You can shoot at it. You could say you don't like it. You can say it's too expensive, but that's a discussion that you're being forced to have because he came up with a plan and said, this is what I want to do. This is how it's going to help. Then Shimkus's comment in response to that, I think would be you know less appropriate. But when you just say we're going to decarbonize by 2050, you're going, okay, great. Great tagline. What are you going to do? And right now, I don't think you know, Republicans on energy and commerce feel like they're seeing a lot of proposed solutions that, that get us there. I just want
2: to understand that because, you know, I'm not, you know, we don't come on the show to like create this debate and score political points. I, I'm really trying to understand your comments, Shane. So are you arguing that we should aim lower because that's what we always do? Is that like, it's political because you're setting an ambitious goal?
0: I mean, in a sense, I know that that, 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 Articulated that way, that sounds very negative. In a sense, what I'm saying is we should aim for something that can get enough votes to pass. And I know this goes back to an argument that we've had in the past. But if if we can't achieve our ambitious goal, then it's just a talking point. So I'd rather find a goal that we can achieve. And I think that's what Shimkus is saying. Is I mean, and I agree with you, Brendan. On the side, we know what the science says. We know what the scientists are telling us. But that doesn't make me feel any better if we're not going to do anything at all to address it. And so what I want to see is let's aim for what we can achieve, even if it's not the ideal outcome, because if shooting at the ideal outcome leaves us in a place where we achieve nothing, I've seen that movie before. Shoot, I'm living it right now. I mean, we didn't do anything in 2009 when it looked like something was going to get done with cap and trade. And my power's out as we speak. So I've seen this movie. I've seen what happens when you try to do something that doesn't have bipartisan buy in. And what it means is that we don't get anything done. And I just—I'm not disagreeing with you on substance, but I just—how much longer can we live in that space? We have to shoot at the practical.
2: So that's the disagreement. It's because they're presenting what you and other conservatives, like Representative Shinka, say is unrealistic. That's what makes it political. You're setting this unrealistic goal, that, so you're politicizing it.
0: I, I think what is that makes the it political train? to to. Uh, to Representative Shimkus might be a little bit different than what makes it uh, political to me. I think what makes it political to him is that is a rallying cry, right? It it, it is also, uh, you know, science, but it is a rallying cry on the left that we see from some of these advocacy groups who obviously hate Republicans. I think that's how he views it. I don't view it that way. I view it as let's set that goal, you know, internally. Let's just, you and I have that conversation, not not you and I personally, but let's actually roll out, if you're the Democrats and you're in charge right now, or, or Republicans, shoot, I'd love for them to do it, but roll out a set of policies and then say, look at these policies. These get us to 100% renewable by 2050. What in here don't you like? I think that's a different discussion than just holding a hearing saying, we've got to do something to get us there. It's like, well, great. Thanks. Well, I
1: think they are trying are to do, do that, do?
0: though. They are, Yeah, they they're going to release the
2: actual legislation. They're working on it. You yeah. know, and they're going to put
0: it out, I think, next spring. And this comment would not be, and, and I wouldn't defend this comment in response to that legislation. But we haven't seen that yet.
1: What would be interesting is that the Republicans turned around and said, "Okay, cool, we see that this is the agenda that you've set. Here's our priorities in this. You want to talk about decarbonizing the industrial sector, which is, I believe, a hearing that this uh, House committee held, the Democrats held what are the Republican solutions to that? Rather than just, let's throw out this concept because it's a tagline, but rather, okay, we get that that's a tagline. Here's what we want to see, though. If this is where we're going, here's our priorities. I think that would be really fruitful conversation. And maybe they're doing that, but I haven't really seen coverage of it.
0: No, I agree with you, Julia. And they're not doing as much of it as I'd like to see. But interestingly, I read all these hearings. Uh, I don't watch all the hearings. I'm not going to say that I do. But I read the hearing memos, and I read the testimony. And interestingly, And the and the and the statements from, you know, the leaders, both on the Republican and Democrat side. And they they go halfway there and they don't go all the way there. And I'm with you. They should go all the way there. But they'll basically say, you know, our innovation agenda is something that's agreeable to everyone. And here's all these great things that are happening. And they're right. They're 100 percent right. But then my question to Republicans and the one that I do ask is I agree with you. What policies can we put in place to accelerate that? And that's where I think they're lacking a plan.
2: I think Democrats would be smart and and. Vice President Biden has mentioned this in some of the debates to, you know, run on this message. You know, we're talking about this net zero by, you know, 2050 goal and Republicans are saying, you know, this is unrealistic. That's we're America. We've done amazing, you know, really hard things in the past. We put people on the moon, you know, when people said we couldn't. I mean, we have done extraordinary things. We have the top, you know, engineers and scientists. We have the best, you know, we have the wealthiest nation. We have... uh, You know amazing financial markets to deal with this like we can do extraordinary things in this country we have done this all along our history and i think an optimistic message like that that i think vice president has you know delivered in some of these debates would be smart for democrats to embrace
1: So Shane mentioned the Schumer plan. That's a $454 billion plan to accelerate EV adoption. It'd be kind of like a cash for clunkers program where individual buyers would get rebates of $3,000 or more to transition to an EV, and the old vehicles would be scrapped. Uh, It would also provide funding for EV charging station and incentives for automakers to build new factories or retool existing ones to assemble zero-emission vehicles. So that's the more specific policy Schumer's put out there. I think it'd be interesting to see if Republicans know know engaged with that but you know so shane
2: you're you're supportive of what senator schumer put out in that um op-ed
0: yeah in fact if you guys will let me i'll, I'll skip to say something nice because my say something nice was going to be about senator Schumer. There's some common ground
1: so let's do it this is our say something nice segment For anyone who doesn't know our democrat and republican have to say something redeeming about the opposing party shane go
0: Yeah. So I want to say something nice about Senator Schumer, Brandon, to answer your question directly, because you asked a yes or no question. The answer is yes. I I agree with what he outlined in that op-ed. Now, an op-ed is not a piece of legislation. And what I'd love to see, and I don't mean this in a critical way, I'd love to see how he plans to do this. I'd love to help, um, because I think that one of the things that's been overlooked by many is that the EV tax credit is good. It is a good thing. But sometimes, the way that it's designed, sometimes it can provide a tax benefit to people who can already afford a nicer vehicle. And I'd like to find ways to get anyone who wants an electric vehicle into an electric vehicle and anyone who wants to be an electric vehicle, some sort of means to have a reliable source of charging for that vehicle so that they're not stranded and all that sort of stuff. All this is very achievable. All this is very doable. Everything that Senator Schumer said in his op-ed is true. But now we've got to articulate a plan on how to do that. If he's got it figured out, awesome. If not, call me. I want to help.
1: Fantastic. Uh, Brandon, do you have uh, something that can can you top Shane?
2: No, that's really great, Shane. (laughs) I'm really happy to hear you say that. Uh, It gives me some hope. My Say Something Nice is about Senator Lamar Alexander. He's a Republican from Tennessee, and he, um, along with Senator uh, Van Hollen uh, from from Maryland, uh, passed out of committee uh, a bill that would include uh, getting ARPA-E, you know, the DOE agency, you know, responsible for investing in early stage innovation up to a $750 million budget uh, in the next five years. Uh, So this is a really important program. A lot of, um, it's very similar to what uh, many know as DARPA, which is the defense uh, version of this agency. And and that uh, is the agency that created things like GPS, uh, created things like the internet. Um, And so, RPE is the energy version of that, where they're trying to do really extraordinary uh, research that would lead to, you know, breakthrough uh, technologies. So it's a critical agency to dealing with climate change, and it's really exciting that Senator Lamar Alexander helped push this thing through committee that could, you know, double the funding uh, for that agency in the next couple of years. So um, I'm really happy to see Senator Alexander do that.
1: Great. Well there's stuff getting done, you know, beyond these horrific headlines of wildfires, you know, and political firestorms. It's nice to actually always be reminded of that at the end of this show. All right. Well, Shane, speaking of fires, I know you have a lot to deal with today. Thanks for dialing in and we wish uh, you a safe day and I hope your family's okay.
2: Shane, if you have to save certain Turkey. items, where does where does like the socks with my face stack up on your priorities <laughs> of like saving? Is that like the first thing you're gonna grab? Is that in out the, of the trunk house? already? Yeah. You, you want to know what's
0: actually pretty funny is those will be one of the first things saved because they're still in my computer bag from when we did the the live show in San Diego, <laughs> and I just packed my computer in my second screen, and I I looked, I was like, holy shit, that's Brandon's <laughs> face <laughs> and Brandon's face. So I've got them, Brandon. They are safe. They are safe.
1: Aw, that warms my heart. For anyone who doesn't know, I got Brandon and and Shane, each a pair of socks with, with each other's faces on them because, you know, that just seemed like a nice reminder. Uh, um, great. Well, good luck, Shane. We'll be in touch with you. Uh, Victoria Simon, thank you. She's the producer of our show. She makes it all possible. Uh, and thanks to everyone for listening. We appreciate it. Uh, as a reminder, you can find Political Climate on all the podcasting services. So go there, subscribe if you like it, leave us a review. We really appreciate it. Also, you can tweet at us on Twitter at underscore climate that's it for today until next time
2: Julie. are we on amazon prime
1: yeah yeah we can put you up on there you can order brandon in less than one day no just the podcast delivered right it's to your door podcast. oh no not in person great because you greet? get
2: these videos with amazon prime i watched this great show fleabag, what fleabag about? is
1: pretty great What about
2: the podcast <laughs> can we be on that
1: too probably could maybe you could put your faces on some socks on there too you know get some merch going all right that is it until next time